So it was that Frodo saw her, whom few mortals had yet seen, Arwen, daughter of Elrond, in whom it was said that the likeness of Luthien had come on earth again. And she was called Undomiel, for she was the even star of her people. Hello, welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings. We're very excited. We have a very special episode here. We're continuing our discussion about Jackson's adaptation of the Lord of the Rings. But instead of doing a scene analysis, which we have uh, loved doing with a variety of guests, we're doing sort of a broader topic today. And uh, we are joined by my eternal co-host, Jen Gallagher, <laughs> a.k.a. Arwen Andomiel. Oh, wonderful. And I am joined today by my co-host, Legolas Greenleaf, a.k.a. Michael Rowland. And we are joined by our lovely guest, Marilyn Pakela, a.k.a. Luthien Tenuviel. Whoa. <laughs> Welcome, <laughs> Luthien. Welcome, Marilyn. Much. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. Well, we're so happy to have you, Marilyn. I'm going to give a quick background on our fantastic guest. So Marilyn taught a course on Tolkien sources off and on over her 35 years at Colby College, where she worked as an academic research librarian. She also taught courses on religious responses to Harry Potter, the religion of contemporary witchcraft, and women in myth and fairy tale, all of which have the common theme of sacred story. She retired in 2019, and six months later, the pandemic hit. So during that time, she discovered podcasts, in particular one on Tolkien called the Prancing Pony Podcast, which we all know and love. Um, a short while later, the show put out a call for research assistance, and she was honored to be taken onto the team. She's also contributed to a few other Tolkien-related podcasts, and and she is now delighted to be on Watch Party, and we are delighted to have her. Um, so welcome to the show today, folks. This is a very special episode because we are going to be talking a lot about the character of Arwen. Arwen in the films versus Arwen in the books. This is a very hot topic. People have all kinds of opinions um, and people have all kinds of opinions about women and Tolkien in general. So we are so excited to have what I consider an expert on the topic and somebody who has spent a lot of time reading and thinking about Tolkien, uh, studying his works. And um, she's going to kick us off by talking a little bit about um, the character of Arwen and her transformation. And we want to really quickly give a shout out to our sister podcast, Watch Party Wheel of Time, which just released an episode exploring similar themes titled Femme Perspectives on the Wheel of Time. So if you're interested in a great discussion about the treatment of female characters and the concept of femininity within Robert Jordan's Legendarium, uh, go check that out right after you listen to this episode, where we're going to be exploring the treatment of female characters and the concept of femininity within Tolkien's Legendarium, specifically through the lens of Arwen who was almost entirely absent from the Lord of the Rings novel, appearing only briefly two or three times in the main narrative and otherwise being relegated to the appendices. But Jackson turned Arwen to a main character in the films, uh, not only very present with a lot of screen time, uh, but also with a role that's more central to the uh, narrative plot, to Aragorn's arc and things like that. So we'll get into all of that. So Marilyn, we're just going to let you loose. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. First, I wanted to say how much I've been enjoying the podcast generally, and in particular, I appreciate that you started off by establishing some criteria for evaluating, because that's always really important. Um, it's easy to respond from an emotional place, and right and good to do that, but it's also very helpful if you do have an idea ahead of time 
what are you going to be looking for and why? So when you came up with your analogy of the book and the film as a diptych, that was a real lifesaver for me because I, you know, the books are the books. The films, it took me a while. Um, I now am very, very deeply attached to them for all their flaws. Um, and it's really helpful to see it as a diptych because in that way, each kind of can show up new facets of the others. So I wanted to thank you both for that. That was very helpful for me. Um, well, thank you. We appreciate that comment. And we have found, you know, we don't always go back and talk about the criteria too explicitly. We don't want this to sound like a lecture every every week. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it was really helpful for us to go through that exercise. And it kind of um, creates a frame where we can kind of check ourselves. Because as you said, there, there are emotional layers to talking about Tolkien, talking about anything that you love. If you're if you grew up on Harry Potter, you're going to be emotional about your connection to the characters as you read them in the books. Or if you were a kid and you watched the movies, you're going to have emotional connections to that. And that's going to be so deeply rooted in how you experience the text that whenever anything new comes along, there's you're bringing all that baggage with you. And it's hard to divorce yourself from that and engage with the new art in a in an honest and unaffected way. And so it's kind of going through the exercise of, of trying to create criteria. It forced us to accept the fact, yeah, sometimes you got to make some changes and and if we accept that, then how do we evaluate those changes and kind of rather than having the emotional reaction that many people very understandably have, I'm not criticizing anybody for having an emotional reaction when they talk about the new show and how the, if the lore is changing, I understand. And believe me, we understand, but, um, having kind of a, a framework to, to, to evaluate those things through and a lens to evaluate those things through, it just helps us view it, engage with it in a more positive light, I think, and enjoy it a little better. And we can kind of separate the new work from the text emotionally, which allows us to engage with both of them more intellectually. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm very glad to hear that that helped you in some respect as well. Yeah, that using Tolkien's own quotation about the canons of narrative art and the importance of holding to the core. I mean, those are some of the touchstones that I look at. Um, but I also look at the film in its own context and say, is it being consistent with itself? Sure. Is it, in fact, you know, a piece of a whole? And I'll have a few things to say about that today <laughs> <laughs> when we get to that point. So we're, we're looking at from book to movie. So I thought I'd start with what I understand to be Tolkien's understanding about Arwen. It's quite clear that he wrote her in the classic fairy tale mold. And there's nothing wrong with the classic fairy tale mold. I want to make that clear. That's a very long lived and very respected image. As we know, he modeled her on Luvian, who was modeled on Edith from the days of their courtship and early marriage. And I brought an excerpt of a letter that he wrote to his son, Michael, just to show the literary sources in a way of his understanding of love and romance and how that framed both the fairy tale image, but also his own individual idea. Um, this was written to his son, Michael, after Michael announced that he had fallen in love with his nurse in the hospital when he was recovering from serious injuries during the Second World War. It's a pretty well-known letter because he has some quite astonishing things to say about women and men, um, some of which do sound very dated. I don't know if you've read it or not. It's oh, letter 43. I know exactly what letter you're talking about. You know we, what I'm talking yeah. about. Okay, I figured, and I'm sure lots of listeners will know too. Yeah. Um, so he's telling his son, quote, having the romantic upbringing... I made a boy and girl affair serious. 
and made it the source of effort. Naturally rather a physical coward, I passed from a despised rabbit on the house second team to school colors in two seasons, all that sort of thing. So the knight in shining armor, you know, going forth to do battle for his love. However, he continues, trouble arose, and I had to choose between obeying or disobeying and grieving or deceiving a guardian who had been a father to me, more than most real fathers, but without any obligation and dropping the love affair until I was 21. I don't regret my decision, though it was very hard on my lover. Now, I want to put in a parenthesis here. What he meant by the word lover in 1941 and what we mean by the word lover now are two different things. Sure. He was talking about his his dear one, not his intimate partner, just to make that clear. Right. To continue, but that was not my fault. She was perfectly free and under no vow to me, and I should have had no just complaint, except according to the unreal romantic code, if she had got married to someone else. But I don't think anything else would have justified marriage on the basis of a boy's affair, and probably nothing else would have hardened the will enough to give such an affair, however, a genuine case of true love, permanence. So this image of fighting, working for your love, you know, you have to go through all these tests. It's a classic fairy tale trope. Um, one of the earliest ones would be Kuluch and Olwen, which is a Welsh tale from the Red Book of Hergest. And I'm sure you can imagine <laughs> what sorts of bells and whistles that set off in his mind, <laughs> and what resonance there is now for, for people who love Tolkien. Olwen was the beautiful daughter of a giant, and Kuluch is the cousin to Arthur, so he gets a fellowship of knights and a whole bunch of other people to aid him in his 40 impossible tasks to satisfy the father Isbadadan, who is the grouchy giant who, well, can understandably why he's grouchy, because if his daughter marries, he dies. So that kind of tension, that kind of scenario um, was a part of his reading life, but also a part of his actual life. What's interesting is that Arwen does not appear until very late in Tolkien's imagination, at the end of the first draft of The Lord of the Rings. So she had to be retconned, as we would say now. And that's one of the reasons why we don't see a whole lot of her, because it was too difficult to put her in in any meaningful way without seriously altering the story. Moreover, Aragorn in his inception was a hobbit named Trotter, who had no sword reforged and no kingdom to be won, so there wasn't a whole lot of point to have, you know, a fairy tale woman for him to win. So when Trotter finally became Aragorn, he was slated to love and lose Eowyn, who was a non-traditional female with a traditional ending in the first draft. She dies. Um, fortunately, by the time he got to the end of the first draft, Arwen is slated to marry somebody, to marry a daughter of Elrond, whose name was Fenduyas. Again, a familiar name to, yep. to many Tolkien lovers. But once she became Arwen, she was intended to echo Luthien's choice and reunite the sundered lives of the half-elven of Elros and Elrond and bring ennoblement to humans. Now, I think I wanted to point out, it's really important to remember she becomes human not because she marries a mortal, but because she chooses to be human. We had the example of Idril, who married Tuor and remained an elf. So, it, you know, that's not the issue. The issue is that she and her brothers and her father and her uncle were all part of this initial choice of the half-elven, which, which line would they belong to? And all of the 
people who descended from that line on the elven side continuously had to make that choice. Well, I love that you mentioned that because it gives her much more agency and so many people's gripes about women in Tolkien is they're so passive and yeah. when do they really choose for themselves and um, I think any time you can highlight you know that they they're characters they're strong people with opinions that's that's important to notice that type of thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and I also think it's important to note that in the actual text, it certainly appears as though she is giving Frodo her place on the boat, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but about a decade after the book was first published, Tolkien wrote a letter to somebody who had read it in September of 1963, in which he says, it is not made explicit how she could arrange this, meaning how could she arrange that Frodo would be able to go to the Undying Lands? She could not, of course, just transfer her ticket on the boat like that, which is almost diametrically opposed to what he says in the book. So it's important to notice, you know, even after publication, he's still working this stuff. He's still changing his mind and re-envisioning things. He goes on, for any except those of Elvish race, sailing west was not permitted, and any exception required authority, and she was not in direct communication with the Valar, especially not since her choice to become mortal. What is meant is that it was Arwen who first thought of sending Frodo into the West and put in a plea for him to Gandalf, direct or through Galadriel or both. And she used her own renunciation of the right to go West as an argument. Her renunciation and suffering were related to two and enmeshed with Frodo's. Both were parts of a plan for the regeneration of the state of men. Her prayer might therefore be specially effective and her plan have a certain equity of exchange. No doubt it was Gandalf who was the authority that accepted her plea. The appendices show clearly that he was an emissary of the Valar and virtually their plenipotentiary in accomplishing the plan against Sauron. He was also in special accord with Círdan, the shipmaster, who had surrendered to him his ring, and so placed himself under Gandalf's command. Since Gandalf himself went on the ship, there would be, so to speak, no trouble either at embarking or at the landing. So. He's, even after the thing's been published 10 years later, he's still thinking about Arwen. He's still thinking about her character. And as you said, Jen, her agency. But the confusion really started, I think, between shifting from book to film with the whole, she gives the gem to right. Frodo and said, you know, this may aid you in, in, you know, when you're, when the darkness comes over you. And the way the films picked that up as a device, I mean, I can talk more about that later, but um, it was very, very confusing. And uh, I thought of it more as a sort of a, um, a post-traumatic stress disorder comfort mm -hmm. a device. Um, you know, different people have different ways and things that they do when, they're, when they've experienced really horrible suffering. Um, and sometimes objects can be helpful just to touch a certain object to to be reminded to bring you out of whatever dark place it was you were and that's how i always understood her gem yeah that change is really really interesting in that i i i see why they they went there they went they wanted visual representation of exactly um, her giving away her immortality let's make it concrete yeah. But I think that does underestimate the audience in some ways. Like we can we can definitely think abstractly. We don't always need the rep right 
the representation. I hope so. <laughs> well, and it was, and you know, I assume we'll get into this a little bit more later once we start talking more about the films, but it is inconsistent yeah. with the way they approached Arwen's mortality or loss of immortality. You know, there are all yeah. these scenes where Elrond's talking about how the light of the Eldar is leaving her and, and okay, so it's already leaving her. What's the purpose of this gem? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do have a few notes about that. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure but, you do too. <laughs> but but to go back to your point about uh, Tolkien changing his interpretation of Arwen, I mean, that's something he did with a lot of his characters. He was always reworking. He was reworking yes. his entire le- legendarium up until really the day he died, I suppose. And, um, yeah. you know, there, there's an interesting debate to be had when it comes to Tolkien's works that you really can't have with almost any other author, which is like, what is canon? And, sure. and some people really get bent over backwards with that. I I'd like to think of it in the way that I think Tolkien intended to think of this as uh, a tapestry of myth mm-hmm. and myth as it is handed down over the generations evolves and changes and these tales change. And so um, perhaps in his mind, he was trying to work, work out a concrete history, but we'll never know. There's no way we can know what the final result would have been because he died before it was completed, really. And um, who knows if he ever intended to really complete it. It was probably just something he would have worked on. No matter If he lived a thousand years, he would have kept working on it. And so I think we can, the most fun way to look at it for me is to look at it as uh, an evolving tapestry of myth. There's no one right version. It's just varying versions and you just let your imagination play in all of them. Um, and you kind of, you can kind of pick the one you like the best and, and, and approach it that way. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned in a letter years later, well, he says, well, this is what happened, but that's not exactly in the book. You know, you, you don't get that. If you've only read the book, you wouldn't get that exactly. It's, it's not inconsistent with what's in the book, but there's no way to know that she spoke to Gandalf and, you know, worked out the, you know, I had him call up the ticket master, you know, <laughs> every ticket master to, to switch over the name of the ticket. You know, there's no way to determine that that happened just from the text of the book. Um, so you can read it a variety of ways. And if you're a person who goes back and reads the letters, then you get this additional perspective and, and valence on it. That's kind of fun. Yes. When it comes to this question of what he did towards the end of his life and what is and isn't canon, I can highly recommend John Rose Grant's book. Tolkien Enchantment and Lost. Um, he has some really interesting observations to make about what Tolkien might have been going through at the end of his life when he did a lot of the writings that we now know of as the the latter volumes of the history of Middle Earth, where he's almost in some respects deconstructing the enchantment part and trying to make it more consistent with science and hmm. you know having different note i mean i I won't say too much about it because i really hope people will will find the book and read it It, it's it's really excellent but i think he spent so much time contemplating and i use that word advisedly as a roman catholic as he was contemplating these characters in this world that he had created and the awesome nature of being a creator of a world and had he overstepped his mandate as it were um as as he would think of it, a sinful human being who nonetheless was made in the image of a creator deity and therefore needed to create. Um, it's, I mean, a lot of people say, oh, well, he just decided he didn't want to finish it because he wanted to be able to continue to tinker with it. I, based on what I read from, from Rose Grant's book, I almost think he, he was having trouble. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that he didn't want to, but he was you know, ha- having doubts. 
wondering, you know, was what he had done okay? And it, it's um, it's a very it's a different perspective, but it does bring us fascinating letters like the one I just read, where he suddenly seeing Arwen in this whole different light, which I'm kind of glad when you consider that, you know, she came in at the very last minute. Most of her stuff had to be shoved into the appendices because yep. he couldn't fit it into the text. And 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 then eventually tying it back to Luthien again yeah. was the other piece. I mean, that was nowhere in the books when when he went through the first draft. And it's only in subsequent drafts that that, that became... And this, you know, I'll raise the issue that I hear a lot which is that women in Tolkien are always the afterthought. I mean, if you look at yeah. Eowyn, if you look at, you know, there was a suggestion from his daughter, why are there no women? You know, there were no women in The Hobbit. And mm-hmm. it, it seems that, yes, Eowyn came, but she was late to come. And it's a lot of people have gripes about women always being being second, you know, secondary to the plot sort of mm-hmm. an afterthought, sort of thrown, added in, and like thoughtfully added in, but um, they're just, they're not major players in the way that some of the men are mm-hmm. major players. I hear this, I hear this issue raised um, mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. lot, and it's not untrue in every circumstance. Well, initially, again, first draft, Aragorn was supposed to meet and fall in love with Eowyn. Right. And they were going to go charging off together fighting battles, and she was going to get tragically killed in battle. So right. another right. sort of fairy tale trope. Well, and, and hearing your summary of the um, evolution of Arwen as a character that, that Tolkien wrote, it tracks very much to me the evolution of the novel in general, whereas it started out as a sequel to The Hobbit. Sure. Right. And Aragorn is Trotter, a hobbit, not, you know, a descendant of the kings of Numenor. And so, right. but as Tolkien discovered the novel more and more, um, it be became higher fantasy and higher fantasy and mm-hmm. until Arwen is not just a, a human a human woman. She's the you know ancestor of Luthien, and now he's building into these characters. And what was originally just this you know modest sequel to The Hobbit, a, a retelling of the tale of Aragorn and Luthien in a way, or um, uh, Baron and Luthien. And right. so it's the, as the novel got more serious, so did Arwen's character. And even though there isn't much emphasis on her, it, it's it's still there. You know, it's still there in the background, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. it lends mm-hmm. itself to it lends to the seriousness of the work. The other thing to think about is um, Numenor itself wasn't really beginning to be envisioned until the early 1940s. And he started working on the first draft in the late 1930s. So that very significant piece of Aragorn's backstory hadn't even been begun, never mind fully fleshed out. So I want to go back to something that you said near to the beginning, which is that Tolkien patterned Arwen at in the mold of the sort of traditional female character in fairy stories. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you could expand a bit on what that means. Absolutely. The classic fairy tale woman, more often than not, has a dead mother or a mother who has somehow disappeared. You think about Snow White, um, Cinderella. You go down the list, it's very hard to find a living mother in wow. fairy tale literature. I never now, noticed in, that. In folktale literature, it's different you do find mothers and the mothers are actually helpful um, in the folktale version of Beauty and the Beast, which is East of the sun, West of the moon in the Norse Norwegian tradition that there, there, there's versions of that folktale type, uh, the man beast husband all over the world, mm-hmm. East of the sun, West of the moon, the girl at first refuses to marry the white bear who comes along and promises to make her family rich. Eventually her father convinces her. She says, okay, 
She goes away. Every night somebody comes and sleeps with her. She doesn't know who it is. She goes back to visit her family. She tells her mother what's going on. And it's her mother who says, you could be involved with the troll here and you better find out what's going on. It's not the jealous stepsisters trying to ruin their sister's happiness. That's the fairy tale version. It's the folktale version where the mother is there. She's strong. She's supporting her daughter. But we lose that when we shift from the folktale format to the fairy tale format. And that and tracks here. Arwen's mother is not dead, but departed. She's, she's back in she's Bellinor. Right. She's out of the picture. She's out of the picture. Um, Arwen is very domestic. She's the Lady of Rivendell. She sews. She gives birth. You know, the, again, the mother is Snow White. She's sitting by the window sewing when she pricks her finger and says, I wish I could have a daughter with um, skin as white as snow, lips as red as blood, and hair as black as ebony. Um, and if you think about Arwen's coloring in the latter part of the films, you know, she, she comes running back from having been packed off to the Grey Havens, and she's all in gray. It's the same kind of gray that she was wearing when she fought or she held off the Nazgul um, at the Fords of Bruinen. But then after she's come back and refused to go to the Havens, the next time we see her, she's in this flowing, flowing dress and the sleeves are blood red. And her hair is as dark as ebony and her face goes paler and paler because she's getting, I mean, it just shouted Snow White to me. It was really pretty astonishing. Um, she's breathtakingly beautiful. That's a classic fairy tale uh, standard. And again, she's the same coloring as Rose White, excuse me, as Snow White, Rose Red. And then there's an Irish character called Nisha who has exactly that same coloring, dark hair, pale skin, you know, red lips and so forth. As Tolkien presents her in the book, Arwen is passive to invisibility. You know, he really had to work hard to put her in in certain scenes. And as he did so, she was still filling these traditional fairy tale tropes. She was the lady of Rivendell. Um, and she sews the banner and sends it off to her love and so forth. Yeah, she literally um, spends the entire time sitting at home, sewing a banner for Aragorn. I mean, And thinking of him. And th thinking of him. <laughs> right, right. Which right. we'll touch on with the film stuff, too. Um, she's a prize to be won. That's a classic fairy tale trope for most women figures. She does give birth, and and yet at the end, we see her become yet another dead mother. Right, right. She's, she's given birth to Aldarion and to her daughters, and because she's chosen mortality, we see her die. So that's that's all pretty classic fairy tale stuff. And again, I will stress, there's nothing wrong with that. The challenges come in when you have a certain notion of what heroism is and isn't and what must be present in order for a woman to be behaving heroically, for a woman to be behaving heroically. I want to inject something here, a thought that, you know, something that I sense subtly in, in Tolkien's writing is, although he wrote a fairy tale and utilized a lot of the same framings and, and, and tropes that you find in traditional fairy tales, I think he subverts them or uses them in a new way or to achieve somewhat different ends. Arwen dies at the end. And so as you mentioned, that's sort of consistent with uh, another part of the, the dead mother trope for females in fairy tales. But that resonates a little differently, I think, in Tolkien's hands because this whole novel is about death and the way he talks about death and the way that he incorporates Arwen's death, her life and then to her death, is more significant as a central theme than I would 
think um, the sort of dead female mother character in traditional fairy tales would be. Whereas like that's sort of like they die. So they're out of the picture. They're not central to the story anymore. So that, that is a way of them sort of exiting the frame. For Tolkien, this whole story was an exploration of death and Arwen's death speaks volumes about that and what he thought about it. So I, I think he's utilizing these traditional tropes, but in a, a new and a new way that is uniquely Tolkien. And it's also important to remember that his mother died. So yeah. it wasn't just a fairy tale for him. Yeah. It was lived experience. And so much of his writings, as you say, are about death. How do you cope with death? How do you understand death in the context of a universe in which you personally understand to have been created by a, a loving God? Right. How do you deal? How do you live with that contradiction? I think um I think you know you you stated it many times he's he's writing within a framework. The framework is the fairy tale. So when you're thinking about, you know, the fact that Arwen is is very domestic and she's all these things, the modern reader, the modern feminist reader or female reader maybe maybe this is less easy to stomach at times that she really is just very um she's so she could be read as bland at times i don't read it that way but she falls into very very traditional categories in many ways but i think bearing in mind that he did do many things as you mentioned michael to subvert the traditional fairy tale story looking for those moments is really important because he's writing within this framework, that's he lived in that he he stayed in that, but he absolutely added so many of his own um, twists or his own spins on things. And I think we see that he he did his best to empower many of these female characters in spite of what it may look like up front. So it's important that we're digging a little deeper, um, knowing that, Hey, the, he's writing the medieval story, but he's putting his own spin. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Because in the class that I taught, um, it was lovely to be doing it over the course of several decades. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, ideas about gender and so forth were constantly changing and evolving. And in the early days of the class, we worked a lot on talking about women's ways of heroism. And drew again from the from the fairy tales but also from the folk tales and the myths examples of uh, common things that would happen such as tears are cleansing you have if you have women characters who cry then they get up and they do stuff now it's gendered insofar as you know guys aren't supposed to cry so how could that possibly be a heroic act well if you are limited in certain, you know, if you consider gender to be a limiting factor in heroic behavior, you can still look at women's behavior and say, this is a heroic act for a woman to undergo. Having strength of will instead of body is a heroic act. Um, persistence is a heroic act. In the folk tale I mentioned, East of Sun, West of the Moon, the lassie keeps going. She talks to three different wise women who give her gifts and she rides on the backs of four different all four of the winds to get to her final destination she doesn't do it by putting on armor and, and taking up weapons there's also a sense in which a woman's way of heroism is indirect or even outright subversion 
Because if you don't have direct access to power, whether that's physical, political, whatever you want, the only way you can be powerful is indirectly. And so, you know, some people might call it sneaky because you're not out there openly defying or whatever. So that, you know, the, the sneaky colonists were hiding behind the trees and shooting at the British army, you know, um, instead of standing up there and confronting them directly. Well, of course they were, you know, they were confronting an army vastly larger than they were. They took what power they had. Right. To use a, a like a masculine example. Compassion is another classic um, women's ways of heroism. Um it's the it's the woman who shows pity on the beggar along the path and shares her supper with her, who gets the prize, whereas the previous two proud sisters just kind of say, leave me alone, and they don't win, right? So you can take this whole collection of behaviors and say, yes, there are women's ways of heroism, and you don't have to be strictly limited to the gendered Male norms of heroism, which are, you know, solitary behavior, violence, strength of body. I mean, you can probably name them all as well as I can. But actually, Tolkien shows examples of both in the female characters, which is key, because if he was only showing one, then, you know, perhaps we'd take umbrage with that. But there are there are many examples of Mm -hmm. feminine characters behaving in all kinds of ways. And vice versa. Thank you, Michael. Go ahead. I was just going to say that. You carry on. Yeah. I, I mean, all the qualities you just identified as, quote unquote, you know, the feminine hero, uh, heroism, we find those in Aragorn and Gandalf. And those are the qualities that Tolkien really highlights as, as being important throughout. So um, mm-hmm. strength of will over strength of arms. We've talked mm-hmm. about this many times on the pod. He doesn't take a lot of time focusing on battles or he doesn't talk right. about how Aragorn's the best swordsman, you know, uh, right. east of uh, Valinor or whatever, you know. Um, he just doesn't care about battles. He cares about strength of will and all the contests that happen between uh, powerful characters. They're contests of will, not contests of, of strength or military might. Perseverance, pity, empathy. You know, these all fall under uh, in the traditional fairy framing uh, on the f- feminist side of the the gender divide. Um, mm-hmm. But these are qualities that Tolkien puts into his male heroes. Uh, what makes Aragorn the king and worthy of being a king is that he's a healer. What makes Gandalf such a great leader and the greatest of the mire is that he is tremendously empathetic and he has a lot of pity. I mean, he was um, a student of Nienna, who's the yeah. valor of, of, of grief and pity. Her tears, um, you know, washed away and cleansed the world, right? And and he is our leader. He is the highest, most noble character that we follow throughout. So, yes, Tolkien embraced traditional uh, gendered view of characterization and yet he took those f- traditionally feminine qualities and put them into his his male heroes and baked them into the whole cosmology and and morality of the universe he created so and you've not yet mentioned the two most important characters who absolutely embody all the things i just described which is sam and frodo oh yes 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 of course and they have been named by Tolkien himself as being the gen- the actual true heroes, the mm-hmm. most important the heroes. The true heroes. The and I think we haven't mentioned, you know, faithfulness as this quality, the feminine quality that you see. Mm-hmm. Arwen particularly displays such faithfulness. And you see that mm-hmm. so much in Sam as well. Yeah. Um, you know, faithfulness to the end, loyalty to the end. All these things were prized so highly, not only in medieval literature, but 
Um, I would say they're prized highly today as well. So, I like the way that the the gentlemen on the Pansy Pony podcast talk about Sam as being the emotional center mm. of the story, and who usually gets that task. You know, it's usually it's the women who are the emotional caretakers. This episode is brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and, of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out 4Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. See, my thing is I want us to be able to get beyond the gendering of these qualities mm-hmm. that these should not be labeled as male masculine or female feminine qualities they should be labeled as human qualities mm-hmm. at which point all of us should have a much freer time of being able to express the full range however and whenever we want to absolutely right and yeah. not be derided because boys don't cry or not be told well girls can't do this or that right. um but it's difficult <laughs> when we have a lot of imagery that, you know, kind of follows along with the so-called traditional tropes. Um, but if we look at, you know, the, the one character that I think is the, mo- the most traditionally masculine in The Lord of the Rings, Boromir, I think it's mm. those hyper-masculine qualities that contribute the most to him being susceptible to the lure of the ring and that, you know, causes his, uh, him straying from the path and he's ultimately redeemed and, uh, he is a heroic character in his own right, but, um, he is the traditional man, strength of arms, you know, uh, prideful, pig headed a little bit. Um, and he's the one who, who strays in the fellowship. So I think that's worth noting as well. Well, the, the ring itself, I think is appeals to those who, uh, wish to dominate. Right. And that has been gendered and to some degree, I think, created as a male masculine trait. Right. There's plenty of domineering women out there, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but in terms of um, being attracted to that mode, and I think, again, he creates hobbits, Tolkien creates hobbits as being the least likely to want to dominate. And that's why they are the least susceptible to the ring, even though, of course, in the end, eventually overpowered, but because of the extraordinary circumstances that Frodo undertook. Right. So the other question, of course, that you all wanted to talk about was what do PJ and company do with Arwen? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Alas, in the tradition of Maria from The Sound of Music or the loathly lady in Gawain and the Green Knight asking the eternal question, what do women want? Arwen becomes not a character to be explored, but a problem to be solved. Mm. I don't know if you've read uh, Ian Nathan's Anything You Can Imagine. I'm I'm halfway through it right now, and it's wonderful. Well, then you know where I'm going yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you've gotten to this point yet. If I may, I want to read from that a sure. little bit. Mm-hmm. Arwen is already very much emotionally awakened. She is firmly and riskily in love with, Ar- with Aragorn, a human even willing to sacrifice her elven immortality for him. For the writer, she offered a solution to the book's marginalization of females, but no other character would lead to as much doubt as the elf maiden. How do you solve a problem like Arwen Eamonstar? 
Between them, Jackson Walsh and Boyens tore their messy hair out, trying to settle on exactly what they wanted, how they wanted to portray their female lead. Arwen should bring romance to the action. Arwen should provide female viewers with a role model as heroic as the men. And Arwen should still be the embodiment of the eternal, dreamlike, wise beyond counting nature of elves so precious to Tolkien, who hardly helped matters by declaring her the fairest creature alive. Little wonder Arwen would be the last main character to be cast. But Settling, who would embody Arwen, didn't necessarily resolve how to play the character. On the shoot, they kept revising the role. Entire sequences were shot of Arwen fighting at Helm's Deep, having arrived with the Legion of Elves from Lothlorien, and early still revealed her with sword and bloody cheek. Fans who have trawled through the films frame by frame claim she can still be spotted at the back of a crowd rampart. Jackson confesses she had to be digitally erased from the rope pulling Aragorn and Gimli to safety. Poor Tyler recalls hours of combat training. There was, she said, a scene of Arwen mounted on a horse charging through the Urukai. She was supposed to be hacking away with her sword, but it never looked right. No matter what I did, I looked weak, she admitted. It was a failed experiment. Tyler and the filmmakers came to accept that the essence of Arwen was not necessarily a fighter. Her strength came from her love and patience. So great, we're back to the women's ways of heroism. And Liv Tyler said, the moment we decided to scrap all of that and focus on their love story, I instantly felt connected. For some reason, that felt better to me in my interpretation of the character. It was definitely a process. Clearly, they're going back and forth between, well, as you heard, trying to please everybody. Um, and I guess the question is, how many people do they wind up pleasing? <laughs> well, this is, you know. Um, some more is, than others, shall we say. Yeah, well, and an interesting offshoot sort of side story is um, there were leaked photos of, of Arwen fighting at Helm's Deep that right. went on on the internet. And this is really kind of the early days of blogging and internet groups and internet forums. And the Lord of the Rings production was really kind of mixed up in that. Ian McKellen was blogging quite a bit and that was all very new. So there was, there were mm -hmm. leaks going out and that's, you know, that spawned the one ring.net and there's a whole story there. We don't yeah. need yeah, to go yeah, into, yeah, yeah. Yeah. but it, it really is, um, the Lord of the Rings production is almost like ground zero in terms of uh, Internet's interaction with film production. And the leaked photos of Arwen fighting at Helm's Deep triggered quite a reaction, quite a negative reaction. <laughs> and I, I think it's pretty well accepted that that negative fan reaction um, contributed to their decision to remove her from those scenes. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think nowadays maybe uh, directors and showrunners are – a little more steeled to that type of thing. They're like, I, I have my artistic vision and I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I'm not going to listen to the fans because how could you now there's so much noise. If you try and take it all in, it's, it's like drinking from a fire hose and you're not going to be able to process it. Um, but back then it was new enough and probably narrow enough that they're like, wow, we really got some useful feedback. So let's not do this uh, approach with Arwen. And they, and they did change it. So um, I think that's an interesting little side uh, side story there. Well, and the other piece to remember is the complications of the genre of film. I mean, not only do you have your varying ideas about a heroic woman, but you also have the actor herself. And Liv Tyler admitted quite freely and openly that she was not a swordswoman. She didn't like to ride on horseback. There were all these things she couldn't do. I thought she did a fantastic job with the flight to the ford 
Agreed. But she was riding on a barrel, you know? Yeah. Um, and I really liked that Arwen. I mean, with with apologies to the people who missed Glorfindel. In some respects, I think that was the best choice that they made for her mm-hmm. as a character. Um, of course, it didn't involve any direct confrontation with the sword. They had an excellent double doing all the horseback riding, and I've done some horseback riding myself, so it was fun to watch um, a real expert at work there. Although there was one really funny moment in the film where she's crying, Nor lim, nor lim asfaloth, and she's holding the horse's head back while she's crying. And the, <laughs> the poor horse is thinking, well, give me my head then so I can go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I also love that scene. Um, and I'm glad they made that change for her. And I'm also so relieved they didn't include the battle scenes. I yeah. mean, to, I think there's a few ways to think about it. But for me, I think it's it feels inherently very sexist to say, well, we have to portray her doing um, masculine things like fighting physically or she's an irrelevant character or she doesn't have enough to do. She doesn't have enough to contribute. Like that to me is very actually um, regressive, you know, because these other, as we've already discussed, these other traits that she portrays are, are depict her strength, depict her power. And you talked about power in the way that she would have had power mm-hmm. in a world that was male dominated. So even then, you see, they don't quite stick to it. I mean, That's Liv true. Taylor is, is quoted as saying that, um, you know, once she realized that she just was not cut out for this, she went to them and said, look, this is how I want to do it. And mm-hmm. they agreed. And she was delighted. So she was making an appeal to the women's ways of heroism that mm-hmm. we talked about and her rejection of fighting at Helm's Deep. But then it far as I'm concerned, they break her character when she starts off for the Havens. Hmm. Because if her essence is the devoted love who has said, you know, the source of hope, there's always hope, you know, I believe in you. um, And then suddenly she changes her mind. I have never understood that. I have never been comfortable with that. And I, I don't see how filmically they can say that this is consistent with the character that they decided to turn her to, which I think was a right decision to turn her to the, the, the woman who is going to, you know, support this great enterprise, because it's not just about her and Aragorn. It's about, you know, the survival of the world. And I do think that she's interested in that. Um, Right. Well, I think, I I think in a way that change to have her do that, to, to set up, for the Grey Havens then do a, a complete 180. It reminds me in a way of what they did with Faramir's character. Absolutely. This is the this is the one thing that I found really upsetting about what seems to be one of their fundamental core values. They break every single character by having them go back on their word. Mm-hmm. Aragorn, well, not every single, that's an exaggeration. That's an absolute, which I always caution my students against. But they break Aragorn because he rejects his inheritance. They break her. They break Faramir. They break Sam and they break Frodo. Mm-hmm. That was the moment when I, 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 I just don't even watch those scenes anymore. I just can't do it. Right. Well, and it's, to think it's a- that, that Frodo would send Sam away and Sam would go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm that's sorry. A really, that's a tough a one. complete break of those 
you know, as we were talking about uh, women's ways of heroism, female feminine loyalty um, and care and keeping your promises. Now that those are not gendered qualities. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, male heroes are supposed to keep their word too. Well, and and I if, have never understood why they did that over and over and over. Well, I think it's some um, Jackson and company in the appendices to the films talked about specifically with respect to Faramir, but I think it applies to these other examples as well. Their approach to storytelling is, well, these characters have to have an arc. And yeah. unsaid in that is the sort of modern approach to storytelling is an arc means you can't start where the character is going to end. And Tolkien, you know, these epic myth and epic fantasy, the characters, it's not always the characters that change. They, you know, Aragorn starts knowing he's supposed to be the king and his arc is not convincing himself he needs to become king. It's it's just fighting the battle to become king. Um, Faramir starts as the strong hero that's able to withstand the lure of the ring and he's, he's wiser and he, he helps Frodo. He doesn't go through any sort of fundamental arc uh, change over the course of the, the novels. Um and you talk about Frodo and Sam, like they, you know, they don't go through this reversal where they doubt each other and they doubt their friendship only to come together for a more heroic friendship in the movies, which is what they did in the movies. And so I think it was just an approach to storytelling that Peter Jackson and that team and Philip Boyens and that team um, embraced that I disagree with, but maybe it's just an artistic difference. Um, characters don't have to, to double back on themselves before arriving at their destination. You know, that, that that doesn't have to be the course of their journey. And they just felt like it did. And so they did that with all these characters, including Arwen. And it, like you, it didn't really sit right with me. It, it, it felt forced. Um, it didn't really make sense. It's like, oh, she's going and then she's coming back. It just felt very um, contrived. I like the way you said double back on their characters. When I, after the films had come out and I could talk about them with a class, um, my students would solemnly explain to me that, well, of course, Faramir had to be tempted by the ring because nobody could possibly believe in somebody who would keep their word like that. And my response was always, okay, so we could believe in a magic ring. We could believe in wizards. We can believe in dragons. We can believe in hobbits. And we can't believe in a human being who can keep their word. No wonder we're in the mess we're in right now. <laughs> that goes even beyond Tolkien and beyond this discussion. That's a statement of the about the world as it is today. Well, because, you know, to some degree, that's what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. Not allegorically, of course, but, you know, if a, if a story doesn't reflect the world we live in, then how are we going to understand it? Right. How is it going to be even relevant to us? So, yeah. Once once she comes back to Rivendell, I mean, and the other interesting thing to note about that is she doesn't return because of a vision of Aragorn. She returns because of a vision of a son. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, again, that's that what I was going to mention. Back to that female trope of your function is to bear children. Nothing wrong with that. Please hear me, both of you in your current family situation. Right, right. Nothing wrong with that at all. But it's not the original premise of the character. Not the not the original premise. I I do think that scene when she has the vision is striking the way it was executed. But again, it's sort of funny because it really does play into a lot of tropes. Um, the film. This is the filmmakers playing into a lot of the the female tropes of what's going to motivate her to stick to him. Well, the pro- the thought of a baby. 
is this the motivator. This is the power of story. And this is why we need to be so conscious of the story we're telling to ourselves, to each other, to our culture, because it sticks. All the more so when you have the visual images and the gorgeous music. I adore Renee Fleming. She sang so beautifully. It was a heart-rending scene. Mm -hmm. And that was in the other half of the diptych. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And unfortunately, the diptych was not consistent within itself. Yeah. That would be my, my point of criticism. If you're going to make changes, make changes, but make them consistent throughout. And I truly think it's because, you know, 20 some years ago, we were still in the midst of struggling with this idea of gender. You know, who are men? Who are women? Who are they going to be? What are they going to be? Are we being really outré by having a warrior princess? Um, how far out is that from Tolkien's vision? Well, admittedly, kind of far out until you consider Eowyn. Yeah, but they didn't need, exactly, they had, you know, Eowyn. I don't think we needed the changes in Arwen, necessarily. If you're going to make the initial change, which, as I said, I liked very much, you need to find a way to make it consistent throughout. Or, you know, at least give her an arc, as Michael was saying, give her an arc that makes sense. And and the, the other piece of it, to me, was this whole thing about, you know, she's dying because Sauron's poison is spreading through. You know, so all of a sudden, she's a Greek dyad, dryad, you know. Um, that part has always been confusing. Because her, yeah. her tree is being poisoned or her wells are <laughs> right. terrible about which are dryads and which are naiads. And when you consider that, you know, in the first film, she held off all nine Nazgul single-handedly, which even Glorfindel couldn't have done. I mean, he had some help. Mm -hmm. um, where did that come from? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's very confusing, and Jen, I think you were starting to say that. It's so I, I don't understand the mechanics of why the light of the Eldar is leaving her at that particular moment. Uh, it, it just she's becoming mortal. It's like a Greek tragedy or something all of a sudden. Um, but it, it it yeah, I think it's confusing for view for people familiar with Tolkien and those who are not, because I've had people ask me questions watching it, like what what's going on? Because like, why is she up. dying? You know? Because they show scenes where she gives up, you know, her the jewel. She gives the jewel to Aragorn, yes. which is okay. She if hands that's it over to him, right? Which is a good thing, right? It, it's it's a heroic sacrifice. It's that's part of the bittersweet beauty of of Arwen's tale is that she voluntarily gives up immortality to stay with Aragorn and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And that happens, and that's a beautiful scene. But then the light of the Eldar isn't leaving her then. Okay, so right. I guess she wasn't really right. giving away her immortality. Right. And she's losing it for some other reason later. And that's now sad. It's like so confusing. And and when he tries to give it back to her, she says, no, 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 it was a gift. Keep it. And I'm like, what gift? You can't give him the gift of immortality. What? what excuse me? <laughs> Even, you know, and of course that was taken out of the, the theatrical version altogether, which is probably just as well. Um but and then when it shatters in the stone, I mean, yeah, it and her fate really is tied to the ring. I think that they thought it out terribly carefully. I just can't think. No. One, you raised the question, Michael. One possible reason for the life of the Eldar is leaving you, etc., might have been to cobble together some sort of justification to have Elrond do his one eighty and reforge the sword and take it. I mean. I, because that in the film, that seems to be the impetus for Elrond to say, all right, fine. Can I just say here, I have a really hard time understanding what 
the Philnick R O N C's in the Philnick. <laughs> well, really, are I, you willing to give up your kin, your immortality, seeing your mother again? I don't know. He's pretty good looking. I will. <laughs> I'm going to throw that one. Uh, out that there. is a very human observation. <laughs> it's a human observation. <laughs> this is a human podcast. They, they well, but you see, they they lost the elfishness of her. Hmm. They achieved it visually in that very first time we see her when she's all filmy and the light is shining and all. Which, technically speaking, she was never a Calaquendi, so she would not shine like that. But yep. I get it. I get it. <laughs> that that was a useful filmic device that I thought, okay, fine, you can have that. You know, right. I get what you're doing there. It's very effective. It's beautiful. It present, but she loses that after that first scene. I cannot think of any time when she looks. Continues to, I mean, she has that beautiful voice that she speaks in. Right. But the scene where the two of them are saying farewell to each other, supposedly, um, not face to face, but the uh, when the when they're leaving Rivendell, the fellowship's going off, and Arwen is standing there in her. I'm sorry, it looks like a Laura Ashley quilted nightgown. I, <laughs> I grew up in the times of Laura Ashley. That's all I can think about in terms of her costume. And she looks very downcast. Mm-hmm. And 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 uh, unhappy and upset, she does not look like a woman who has complete faith in her guy, who's going forth to do battle for her. And Aragorn's almost smirking and looking back at her. And I can't read his his messages in his face at all. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Of course, in the theatrical version, we didn't see that you know he was trying to give her back a lavalier. And break up with her. Right, right. You know, so once you have that piece, at least the looks they exchange make some kind of sense. But the whole thing doesn't make sense to me. So I'm afraid I'm just lost. So this is something we talked about with Luke Shelton in our last episode um, about the Fellowship. And we covered the scene where that's in the extended edition that you're referring to where they uh, leave Rivendell. And so something that's unsaid that we we haven't mentioned yet on this podcast um, that we've discussed previously is that the changes they made to Arwen's character and her plotline and her role and all that, it's all bound up in the changes they made to Aragorn's character and his arc. So I think it starts with what they decided to do with our Aragorn. Let's make him a reluctant hero. He he can't be ready to be king right away. That has to be part of his arc, and he gets there in the end. Okay, so part of that is we can't reforge the, the sword until we can't reforge it in Fellowship. We have to reforge it in Return of the King. There's all these changes that that flow from that initial decision to change Aragorn's character. Arwen's character is totally bound up in in that. Her function in the story, um, symbolically and and narratively, it's all bound up uh, with the relationship with Aragorn. So in that scene, there's a significant change uh, with what Aragorn's motivations are. So in the book, he's setting out to reclaim his kingship. The sword is reforged. He bows his head and it says something like only Elrond knew the significance of this moment. He's setting out to reclaim the kingship and not only the kingship, but the right to wed Arwen, which is his heart's desire, which he is not giving up. He wants that. So his his primary motivation, he's setting out for um, Gondor. He's not planning on going all the way to Mordor with Frodo at this point. He's setting out for Gondor to reclaim the kingship and earn the right to be to wed Arwen. That is completely reversed in the films. He is saying, I don't want to be king. I don't want you to give up your immortality. Um, so I'm breaking up with you and I'm, I'm going off on this, you know, 
very honorable mission to help Frodo on the ultimate quest. So he's doing something very honorable. He's still a hero, but it's a very different type of heroism. And it's complete, uh, completely different implications with respect to his relationship with Arwen. So, yeah, they're breaking up. She's really bummed out because he's leaving. I think that's what's going on there. Um, and that is a complete reversal from the books. Well, it is what's going on. But in the theatrical version, we have no idea about that. Right. Because that's an extended scene. And so scene. it's really confusing. In fact, I can actually, I actually feel a little bit of sympathy for Filmic Elrond in the scene, which again wasn't in the theatrical version, at um, Gilrein's grave, where he's trying to urge this guy, you know, you're the only one who can do this, you know. So, yeah, I kind of can sympathize with him when he wants Arwen to get out, because why would he want her to marry this dude? You know, (laughs) even though he is his own great, 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 great many times nephew and his foster son, which point is completely lost in the films. Right, right. All we know is, you know, Aragorn grows up in, in Rivendell. Um, but in the books, it's this very, very important, close, loving relationship. Probably not unlike Father Francis in, in Tolkien himself. Right. Oh, sure. So that is, of course, completely altered um, by, as you say, Michael, that choice um, to make this arc for him Um I don't ever recall feeling disappointed that King Arthur didn't have an arc. No. <laughs> to be perfectly honest. I mean, it's it's I think they're very concerned with modernizing for the modern viewer. This is for the modern, you know, theater goer, movie goer. Um so yeah. both of them are very modern, human, messy. Let's make them messy and let's make them right. relatable. And I think there's a big emphasis on that in almost every character, but character, but definitely in Arwen and Aragorn, and that Arwen has doubts, Arwen's conflicted, Arwen loves him, but is torn. Um, she's not the steadfast character that we get. And Aragorn, of course, as we already mentioned, you know, he's he's reluctant, he's messy, he's torn, he's tortured. All these things are very modern ideas about um, the complexity of, the human condition condition and what's lost in that is is as you mentioned her elvish qualities a lot of her elvish qualities are lost because she is not human in the books she's elvish which is its own it's its own race its own thing entirely so it, yeah again totally understandable but you wonder if we could see a true depiction of arwen what the reaction would be, because my suspicions are it wouldn't be so negative um, if the full picture were shown. Mm-hmm. I think we saw the full picture in, in her first scene. From the time she surprises Aragorn to the time she defies the Nazgul. That Arwen is a character I really could have gotten behind. And she wouldn't even have to have gone to Helm's Deep. You know, there could have been, I mean, I can make up stories about anything I could spin a different line that would maintain that, but you got to believe presenting elvishness is got to be the hardest challenge and leaping ahead to the focus of your podcast. That's going to be a huge challenge Mm. for the Amazon show. How are you going to do that? And I think that when they decided on the compressed timeline, they lost an enormous opportunity Mm -hmm. to do just that. By showing the Elvish characters existing through time and having the human characters coming in and out and in and out. Now, 
obviously, if you want to have some big name human characters in there as actors, um, they're not going to be too pleased if they find out that they get killed off in, you know, after the second season or whatever. That might have been some of the consideration. But it's such a hard thing to do because otherwise you're just going to be resenting them because they're better than you at every turn without having the additional context of the weight of having to exist as long as this earth exists. Right. How do you convey that? I don't know. But I really felt the elvishness of Arwen. You felt the elvishness. I yes. really did. I mean, I think it's there. It. I think it's, yeah, I think it is there. And I think they tried to incorporate it. I'm thinking of the scene in the extended version where she wrote, I believe it's in the extended version, um, where she revives Aragorn after he's fallen off of yeah. the cliff. Mm-hmm. Um, Those are, off, that's in both versions, actually, Jen. Yeah. Okay. Off of the warg. And, and she, you know, sort of mysteriously appears. She's there, but she's not there. She's there as a spirit. That that's an interesting scene. I feel like um, we should talk about that scene a little bit because I think that was an attempt to to emphasize. Well, she's got special something special about her special powers, if you will. She's she's elvish, um, and she's also present with him throughout the story. They're trying to keep her very present and relevant. Um, but what did you? What did you? What was your take on that scene? I'd be curious to know. I'll jump in because this dovetails into something that I. I kind of wanted to enter this topic. We've been talking a lot about differences and maybe with kind of a critical eye, but going back to our, our diptych metaphor, one of the things I loved about what they did with Arwen and that I really appreciated is, you know, in the book, there's so little of her. And we even the stuff we get in the appendices, it's because it's an overview fashion. We're kind of left to wonder what was their relationship like? Um, how did, you know, there, there's, Sentences like, you know, she watched over him from afar. What does that mean exactly? And as a kid, I never really thought too deeply about those those lines. I didn't really, I tried to imagine, I, I just assumed she's in Rivendell and he's off doing his own thing and there's no con- ongoing connection there. So there is, there is an important underlying story, but it's all preamble that informs their decisions. There's nothing going on between them during the Lord of the Rings. That's what was always in my head. They do something a little different, and it has some textual support, as I just mentioned. There are some lines that suggest, uh, you know, she was watching over him from afar. They make the creative choice to show them continuing to connect in some way, um, in thought, through dreams or something more than dreams. And they leave it, I think, intentionally vague, but they kind of fill in those gaps and um, make their relationship come alive and be far more present throughout the narrative. And I thought that was really interesting, and it made me think about them in a different way. It made me think about the books and the relationship in the books in a different way. So this was an example of creative choices that by no means are, you know, right or wrong or canon or non-canon. They just sort of took what was there, which is very skimpy, kind of a blank canvas, and they let their creative minds run wild and, and filled it in a little bit. And by doing so, I, I gave me new ideas about the the novel itself. So um, I, that's sort of my general overview. We can talk about the specific scenes and the ones that you were just mentioning, but um, there's a lot of these scenes in there that kind of, that did that for me. And I, I, you know, thank you to Peter Jackson for doing that. Yeah, they mentioned that in the appendices to the um, extended edition DVDs. Um, Philippa says, try pitching a psychic connection between two lovers. The response would be, get out. I wouldn't blame them, the studio, for that response. 
And as you're saying, that's what they did. And I think in some degrees it was successful. Now, I was confused for quite some time as to when these things were happening and were they actual or dreams. And I finally came to the conclusion on this most recent watching that the scene where he's lying on the lounge, chaise lounge, and she's sitting there telling him to sleep and so forth. I think that he was remembering that. I don't think he was dreaming that. Because she says to him, you're going to go with Frodo and it's going to be fine. And he's, your path is laid out before your feet. And he says, I don't know. And she says, if you trust nothing else, trust us and trust our love. So that made more sense to me. Mm -hmm. Trying to fit in their, their conversations and all these different times, um, you know, it was tricky. And yeah, I do think that the, you know, the grace of the valor protect you. Again, that was a filmic device by the same way in which at the Fort of Bruin and she was saying to Frodo, um, or what grace I have, let it pass to him, mm -hmm. let him live. Again, canonically, according to the book, not possible. But that is a, that touch of elvishness, if you will, that um, does kind of try and convey here. But I just wanted to point out again from anything you can imagine, it's it's frustrating to me that they couldn't allow her to be and maintain herself as an active, loving, loyal, and hopeful, above all, hopeful character. But it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> As, again, anything you can imagine tells us in the earliest scripts, Arwen is sent in from the sidelines, as Boyan admits, more of a Hollywood stereotype. Yes, thank you for your honesty. At the heart of the action, at both Helm's Deep, and at the Pelennor Fields. And at one point, she was given Eowyn's role of killing the Nazgul. Now, can you imagine how that would have blown up everybody? Oh my god. Such gosh. a mistake. That would have been such a mistake. Not to mention that after the Battle of Helm's Deep, they were going to film scenes of Arwen and Aragorn frolicking nakedly in the pool in the glittering <laughs> caves of Aglarond. Can you? Oh, I want to see that scene. I want to see that scene. I'm sure. I'm sure. Oh, that would have just set off a firestorm. I mean, it, as fire I'll come storm. back to my original point, they just didn't know what to do with her. <laughs> and they, as so often happens in, in these contexts, they wanted her to be too many things. Well, and like Tolkien's evolution as he was drafting the character and how she changed over time. She mm. changed over time in the scripts because there were production pressures. They were going from studio to studio. At sometimes there right. was a two movie script. At some point they were plotting out a one movie script hour, you know? And so of course, if you're going to compress it, do a one or two movie script, maybe it does make sense um, logistically to just do away with AON and, and replace it with Arwen. I think that would have been horrible, but you have to under. I've, I can sympathize with the plight of the creative individual who's put in that position to compress, the, uh, you know, a three volume um, novel like the Lord of the Rings into one or two movies. You have to start thinking outside the box and doing things like that. So they start thinking these crazy things like having Arwen kill the Witch King. Um, I'm glad, obviously, that that is not what happened. But it's uh, interesting to think about the process um, that they went through. Yeah. And the other way that she to me loses her elvishness i i i still don't understand entirely what they were aiming for with the scene where he they're reunited after aragorn's coronation 
you know, obviously he's been thinking she's dead all this time. And that, you know, raises the question, why didn't somebody tell him that she wasn't, you know, why does it have to be the big reveal? Well, that's clearly, you know, filmic convention, uh, at least. And by the way, totally lost on me for the first like five times I watched it. I, I didn't, it didn't connect to me. Yeah. And, and having her curtsy to him, uh, I'm sorry, that just felt wrong, 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 wrong. Although it was a very nice kiss. That was a very nice kiss. <laughs> um, one nice little touch I noticed in the music, I think, it, again, Renee Fleming was singing some of the text that they had written. And they pulled from the tale of Tanuvio. And the actual lines that were being sung at that moment was uh, Tanuvial, the elven fair, immortal maiden, elven wise, around him cast her shadowy hair and arms like silver glisten. So, you know, it's clear they had a love for the text and a knowledge of the text. I mean, to do that kind of thing, that level of detail, um, it, it really was wonderful. Yes. Um, and I think they tripped over the fact that, as I said before, 20 years ago, there was a lot of kerfuffle and turmoil about mm-hmm. women's roles, female characters. And several times throughout um, the filming and so forth, um, you hear other actors talking about, yes, this is a boys film. And any time that Kate or Liv came on set, suddenly the behavior changed radically. And um, I'm blanking on Legolas's character's uh, actor's name. Orlando Bloom. Um, Orlando Bloom said that he felt sorry for her um, because, you know, she was the only girl amongst a bunch of boys. And so that dynamic was there as a subtext. And you can be the best actor in the world. It's got to be hard to switch that off altogether. So those things were, were having an influence too. Oh, and then the song, the uh, With a Sigh You Turn Away, which, that Liv was singing. I, it wasn't until I started reading up on the stuff that, that I discovered that that was supposed to be Arwen singing to Eowyn. Um, but it wasn't initially. Initially, it was a song to be sung when she was leaving the Grey Havens and saw Aldarion run across her path. But it didn't make sense in terms of what finally happened. It was supposed to be just Aragorn. That's right. At that point, it was still just Aragorn that brought her back. But then when they decided to show Aldarion, the text didn't make sense anymore. And Liv was disappointed because she'd wanted to be a singer and she was delighted to be able to sing for the movie. So that's when they kind of lifted it up whole cloth and plunked it into the um, Houses of Healing scene. And Again, it's like, no wonder it didn't really feel like it was fitting the circumstance here. Um, But um, Philippa said something about the song is for someone who must come back from the depths of despair if they are to endure and keep going. So, you know, it works. What do you think about... uh, Well, go ahead, Jen. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just... I I thought it was actually... A kind of a nice touch to ha- to have something like that in there, just again showing thoughtfulness to the songs of the original. So actually, I like liked it, but well, I was probably being more literal than was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you both a, a part of a plotline that they kind of introduce, and it makes sense that it would exist. But 
they explore the relationship of Arwen and Elrond in a way that the book doesn't explicitly. Um, but you have to imagine they are father and daughter. Um, she's making uh, a choice that would result in them being ultimately sundered forever. Um, and they spent a decent amount of time exploring that relationship, um, which fleshed out Elrond a little bit more uh, in a way that I think I like. Um, uh, but I, I just want to throw it to both of you. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about Arwen, the uh, love interest. Um, what about Arwen, the daughter? Um, because that is one of the relationships, the primary relationships that she has in the movies that they explore. And um, what, what do you think about that? Well, I admit to being pretty uncomfortable with the filmic Elrond um, because almost, I guess it's the second scene we see him in. Um, he's become a politician. I was really kind of put off by his, you know, the elves are leaving, the dwarves are hiding away, men are weak, you know. Mm -hmm. And the whole contentious atmosphere at the Council of Elrond, um, all of that kind of distressed me. So maybe that sort of colored my reactions to that. But um, that scene where he asks her, do I not also have your love, was so manipulative. Yeah. So manipulative. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, no thoughtful father, I hope, would ever do that to their daughter. I, I sympathize with him um, because he doesn't want to lose his daughter. And actually, I, as I say, I felt like felt compassion for him when he was facing Aragorn. And this is, this is the hot mess that my daughter has fallen in love with, you know? <laughs> right. Um, but also at the end, when he whispers to her, go to him. And again, you have to be able to read lips to figure that out. Yeah. He's losing something incredibly precious forever. Right which is not an experience that an elf would have to have. Now, mind you, we don't see this in the film, but of course his wife had left a while ago, but he knows eventually he will see her again. Right, um, right. That, of course, is outside the context of the film. In fairly stereotypical fairy tale fashion, we don't even hear a mention of Arwen's mother in the films. So we have no clue without knowledge of the books of what that situation is. We don't even know, I don't think, that Galadriel is her grandmother and that she spends, you know, time in, in uh, Lorien. Right. So as far as we can tell, they only have each other, that the twin brothers are gone too, of course. Yeah, they make no appearance whatsoever in, in the films. Yeah, so that kind of mitigates the whole scene to some degree, but... Um, yeah, the it manipulation... Certainly a, it certainly is not allowing his daughter her free choice. Yeah. yeah the manipulation well, always rubbed me the wrong way too and it's you know not just the do i not only have your love it's you know he has the gift of foresight they create this you know he has the gift of foresight so he can see that perhaps they she will have a son and he doesn't share that information so he yes. he paints this whole picture about her death yeah. and the pain of mortality he makes her feel that and experience that and maybe that's not bad in and of itself because hey she needs to know that information and so he's helping giving her that information but he's withholding the other side of the coin um because He's not being an honest broker here. He wants her to leave. Right. And he has an agenda. He has an agenda. And that just doesn't feel like Elrond to me. And no, no. You know, maybe this is another example of them creating an arc for a character that was, wouldn't otherwise be there. He has to, you know, overcome his own uh, feelings before accepting 
uh, Arwen and Aragorn being together at the end. You know, he presents her to, to Aragorn at the end, so he eventually comes to terms with it. But I, maybe he has his, they created an arc for him um, because, hey, we can't have Elrond be okay with it right away because that's just not how we write characters. Um, so they, they had to give him some struggle to overcome. Again, very modern. It's a very modern interpretation to have. It's a very paternalistic relationship. He's shielding her. He's trying to make decisions for her. He's trying to control her. Um, and then she comes back with, well, you can't tell me what to do. I saw this vision. I'm going anyway, you know, in a more gentle manner. But that's a very modern, very modern sort of telling of their relationship. And and, and, um, and in the books, it's definitely, I think it's less explored in the books, but it, it it certainly wouldn't have manifested that way, I think, in Tolkien's uh, imagination. Imag- no, no, okay. they're quite clear in the books that the two of them go off together into the hills above Edoras. Right. So that they can say goodbye alone. And um, at that point, Arwen returns to Minas Tirith and uh, Elrond returns to Rivendell. And that is the last time they will see each other. I guess to play the devil's advocate, if I were to argue the opposite point, uh-huh. Um, you know, there is a scene in the books where Elrond tells Aragorn, you are not worthy of my daughter unless you become the right. king of the United Kingdoms of Gondor and Arnor. Right. Oh, that yeah, in a way, I... you know, I, I don't interpret it this way, but you could construe that or view that as like, well, he is controlling the situation. He's not going to, you know, encourage their love until and he's going to play, play some obstacles in the way. And you can even compare it to the, you know, the conditions that Thingol placed on Baron the impossible conditions before he would consent to him marrying Luthien. You have to steal a Silmaril from the crown of the Iron Crown of Morgoth. You know, I think that's different because that was a intended to be a death sentence, whereas right. Elrond was trying to, in that instance, just encourage Aragorn to further embrace his his destiny. Um, but well, you can read it a different way. To, that goes back to the sorry for interrupting. It goes back to the original fairy tale trope that I started with. Uh, the evil giant is Badadan setting 40 impossible tasks for his daughter Olwen to marry uh, Kuluch because he knows that if his daughter marries, he's going to die. Oh, yeah. In no way am I arguing that the, bo- the book would be more progressive. Uh, that's not no. the argument. No, 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 um, no, I don't hear that. I, but I am saying I think it would have been... Ili- their relationship is different. In the book. Um, so... Yeah. The deception way, wouldn't have been there. The dece- Exactly. I agree. I agree. I mean, it's an interesting question. Technically, elves cannot deceive one another because they have the Asanwe Kenwa. Yeah. So they can they can communicate with each other in thought. And you are you are able to block another person right. if you wish them to enter your mind. But of course, you detect the block and therefore wonder, well, what's going on with this person? I also very definitely question this whole notion of Elrond having foresight. Um, I don't remember any indication of that in the books i think again it's a filmic device and i think they had to do the sorts of things they did i guess i said this already um because ultimately the only thing that gets the sword reforged is elrond deciding all right my daughter's dying this dude's got to come through or she's going to die and i guess that means she's got to marry him too um Right, he's backed into a corner. He's forced right, to accept right, it. Right, right, right. Which is, you know, hardly kind or fair to Elrond if he wouldn't look at it that way. But still, he contributed to his own conundrum, I guess one might say. 
right? On the foresight issue, yeah, I I agree with you that I can't recall any instances where they, where Tolkien expressly indicates that Elrond has this gift of foresight, you know, which uh, Tolkien does, doesn't really talk about foresight that expressly. I maybe there's a couple, there's an instance or two in the Silmarillion where he uses that type of phrase. But anyway, there are examples. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. It's a tricky issue if you believe in free will. Right. Yes. And I think that's why he just doesn't go there. He has enough time balancing out, you know, the free will versus fate. And, you know, Elru Iluvatar is nudging things. You know, Bilbo was meant to find the ring. People look at that and say, well, that's not free will, is it? My interpretation is Elru's will is carried out only when people are free to make free choices. Right. And when they're not, that's when you have manipulation, domination, and so forth. And um, that's when Eru has to step in with little mm -hmm. nudges like, you know, Gollum conveniently falling off the edge of the cliff, <laughs> holding the ring. Um, yeah. You know, there's er Eru jokes just about, went in and went, boop, and pushed him over the edge. <laughs> there's jokes about Eru's banana peel at the edge of the <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so but there are a lot of little examples of characters having foresight. You know, like sure. uh, the one that comes to mind is Aragorn telling Aragorn. Gandalf, don't yes. go into Moria. I'm worried about yes. you. I just have a, a feeling that, but it's, it's um, presented less clearly than it is in the movies. In the movies, the gift of foresight, like it's a superpower. Whereas in the books, the marks. yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the books, when someone has, you know, has some foresight, it just kind of happens upon them. It's not, um, you know, like a mutant superpower. So yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's made me think of that. Well, Marilyn, we have so enjoyed having you, and this is such a fascinating topic. I feel like we could just keep going, pontificate for hours, but um, we so appreciate you coming on, and I would love to have you back, Marilyn, anytime, as, and I'd love to have you just chat with me about uh, your studies on religion of contemporary witchcraft, because I'm so fascinated by that. So <laughs> we'd love to have you back Um and thank you for all your contributions. And where can we, you're you're always featured on different podcasts. So where can people listen to you? What are your most recent recordings? Well, it's it's not, you know, an ongoing settled thing, but you'll hear me from time to time mentioned as one of the research assistants on the Prancing Pony podcast. And Great. you'll hear me reading on um, Jordan Rennell's Music of Middle Earth. And actually, I've, 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 um, I presented at Oxenmoot once or twice. I don't. I don't know at this point yet if I'm going to be able to um, take part in in the PPP moot or not, or Oxenmoot. But I've got some ideas in the back of my head. And Michael, you mentioned Nianna, and she is somebody I focus on a lot. And I really do hope to do some writing about her sometime. So the more I actually say that for the world to hear, maybe that'll be more. There you go. A push to actually carry through. Well, I would love to read whatever you write on that t topic. So well, please do you. write and it and let me know when you do. I'm delighted to have been here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I'll happily come back anytime you want. Amazing. I'm going to end with a quote that you sent us. It's your quote. I'm going to read your quote to you to end. Oh, my. Oh, <laughs> because I loved it so much. Okay. So to me, Tolkien means you catastrophe. He means the power of compassion instead of power over. And he means valuing the beauty and sacredness of the earth. So thanks everyone for listening. And may the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. Until next time.
So, Marilyn, after we finished recording the main episode, you actually emailed us back almost right away and said, wait, wait, I got a couple more things I want to talk about. And uh, that really just goes to show that Tolkien's Legendarium really is just a bottomless well. It's, it's a, there's a wealth of material to talk about. And, and it also goes to show that people like you and like us, you know, our brains never turn off. We never stop thinking about this. And there's always new perspectives to explore. And, and uh, you know, we don't stop thinking about it when the conversation stops on this podcast, folks. So for those of you listening, we're just kind of always thinking about this material, as are you, most likely. That's probably why you're listening to a Tolkien podcast. So uh, Marilyn, what do you have for us? So for this Grey Haven segment, I wanted to touch on something I don't think I emphasized enough, something which goes a long way to explaining the stereotyped roles of women in fairy tales. It's an old, old equation. Woman plus power equals evil. Think of any fairy tale you like, and then think of the most powerful woman in that story. Almost invariably, she is also the wicked one. Bruno Bettelheim's theory is that this, along with the dead mother, conveys to the listeners that a powerful woman is a wicked woman. Think the sorceress of the Golden Wood, feared by some of the Rohirrim. Whereas a good girl will follow the path of her blessed, i.e. dead, mother instead, and be passive, biddable, and marriageable. So no wonder we're all kerfuffled by a woman who defies men, or Nazgul, with a sword. And no wonder we have trouble envisioning women who are both powerful and good, never mind feminine, whatever that means, to one's own culture. I'll be really, really interested to see how this works out for young Galadriel. They've already given her svelte armor and a fancy dagger in her poster. Small wonder that even that one glimpse provoked a storm of conversation. And small wonder that Peter Jackson and company had such a hard time crafting their vision of Arwen, who, like so many women today, was asked to take on so many roles that she was never able or allowed, to settle into any of them with consistency. Marilyn, thanks again. It's been wonderful having you on, and we hope you'll join us again. 